This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Be good first to um, define some terms and uh, make sure we're all clear on what we mean by evolution, or at least what I mean by evolution. I think when people have these sorts of conversations uh, about evolution, they have in mind a sort of a conjunction of views, a combination of views. One is what you might call the ancient Earth thesis. So the Earth is very old. Another one is what we could call the progress thesis. Life has progressed from relatively simple to relatively complex forms of life. Common ancestry thesis says life originated at only one place on Earth and all subsequent living things are related by descent to those original living things. And then Darwinism is the proposed mechanism by which this happens at least typically. Um, and Darwinism is the view that life developed on Earth by means of natural mechanisms, natural selection operating on random genetic mutation, or perhaps other mechanisms like genetic drift and migration, etc. And then finally, the last thesis is a naturalistic origins thesis. Life itself originated from non-living matter. So when I say evolution, I mean the combination of these views. Okay, um, why well, I think there's a sort of tension between evolution and Catholicism. Well, here's something that Pope Pius XII said in 1950, specifically about um, Darwinism. Uh, for reasons having to do with the doctrine of original sin, Pope Pius declared, the faithful cannot embrace that opinion which maintains either, so you can't accept either one of these, that after Adam there existed on this earth true men who did not take their origin through natural generation from him as from the first parent of all. Okay, so all humans have to come from Adam, ultimately. And you can't say Adam represents a certain number of first parents. It's like Adam was a particular person in history. Also, even if the human body came from pre-existent and living matter, the Catholic faith obliges us to hold that souls are immediately created by God. So there needs to be some special divine action um, to bring about souls um, in this evolutionary history. Pope John Paul II reiterated the second bit in 1996, saying theories of evolution which, because of the philosophies which inspire them, regard the spirits either as emerging from the forces of living matter or as a simple epiphenomenon of that matter, are incompatible with the truth about man. Okay, so let's think about um, a couple of potential conflicts between evolution on the one hand and Catholic doctrine on the other. And we'll start um, with just a few words about uh, what looks like a Catholic commitment to an actual founding pair, a historical Adam and Eve. So um, haters will say, just kidding, I mean skeptics will say, uh, something like this, Dennis Venema is a skeptic who said, look, there couldn't be a founding pair because to generate the number of alleles we see in the present day from a starting point of just two individuals, you'd have to postulate mutation rates far in excess of what we observe for any animal. And so I think um, Catholics and Christians generally have two options here. One is just to say yes. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. I mean, if you're already into special divine action in the world um, and you have God, you know, especially creating souls and perhaps 
orchestrating and supervising the evolutionary process, it's not too much of a stretch to say, yeah, perhaps God did accelerate the mutation rates. That's possible. Or, um, if you want to keep special divine action to a minimum for some reason, um, you could say this, even if skeptics are right that we come from an ancestral population that never dropped below 10,000 individuals, um, even if that's right, there still could be a founding pair. This is the way William Lane Craig recently put it, could be that a founding pair existed as a part of a wider population with whom the founding pair's descendants may or may not have interbred. And so here's one possibility that Craig entertains. Um, so here's uh, a brief evolutionary history of humans. And there was a bit of a fork here um, that took, if you go down this path, you get to modern humans. If you go down this path, you get to other sorts of hominids uh, with which modern humans interbred in their history. Um, and it looks like this split happened between 765 and 550,000 years ago. One possibility is, as Craig puts it, both Neanderthals and Homo sapiens are heirs to the cognitive capacity for modern behaviors already present in an ancestor right around here, Homo heidelbergensis. And this increased cognitive capacity is itself the result of a crucial mutation in some ancestral individual or individuals belonging to Homo heidelbergensis. That's just one possibility. Um, here's another way to think about it, and now this is where you could blink if I say anything terribly wrong. Suppose there's a gene for red hair. And, well, there is a gene. Don't suppose there's a gene for red hair. There is one. Um, suppose it originated only once. Obviously, everyone um, carrying that gene or those genes is a descendant of that originator, even though interbreeding happened. Okay, now think about humans. We know there haven't always been humans. At one time, there weren't any humans. So, um, pretty sure this is right. If whatever makes us human genetically originated once or twice, everyone carrying that feature is gonna be a descendant of those originators even if there was interbreeding. It'd be just like the red hair case, although presumably there's gonna be a lot more genes involved. But if it originated once or twice in a family pair, everybody who carries that characteristic and is a human in virtue of it has to be a descendant of those originators even if there was interbreeding going on with uh, non-humans, ultimately. Okay, that's all I wanted to say about that. Um, now we're gonna move into more philosophical territory where I feel a lot more comfortable. Thank you for bearing with me <laughs> on the historical Adam and Eve stuff. All right, second potential conflict has to do with the definition of the species. Here's something Aristotle said about natures in book two of his physics. So he says, of things that exist, some exist by nature, and some from other causes. By nature, the animals and their parts exist, and the plants, and the simple bodies, the elements, like earth, fire, air, and water. Say that these and the like exist by nature. All the things mentioned plainly differ from things which are not constituted by nature. For each of them, namely these things, the things which exist by nature, have within themselves a principle of motion and of stationariness, or in other translations, a principle of motion and rest in respect of place or of growth and decrease or by way of alteration. On the other hand, a bed and a coat and anything else of that sort, while receiving these designations, 
lack that innate impulse to change. But insofar as they happen to be composed of stone or of earth or of a mixture of the two, they do have an impulse, um, and just to that extent, which seems to indicate that nature is a principle or cause of being moved and of being at rest in that to which it belongs primarily in virtue of itself and not accidentally. So let me try to translate this for you <laughs> from the English to the sort of language we speak. Um, so he's, Aristotle seems to think that there are natural uh, substances. Some of them are elements like earth, fire, air, and water. Um, and he thought that, for example, earth naturally wanted to do a certain kind of thing, had a certain goal or end. Earth was trying to get to the center of the universe. And that's why if you pick up a rock and then drop it, it just does its natural thing of like trying to get back to the center of the universe. He thought there was a center of the universe. Um, and so you don't, nobody has to do that to Earth. Earth does that naturally. It has this principle of motion and rest naturally in itself. That's just what it is to be Earth, to function in that way. He thought also animals were similar in that way. They had within them an innate impulse to change. You can sort of think of like a little dog fetus in utero sort of stitching itself together naturally. You don't have to teach it to do that or train it to do that. It does that by itself. It looks like very similar to how Aristotle thought the elements were. It has a sort of natural end or goal that it's trying to achieve. Um, and so that's what Aristotle thought natures were. They were the sort of power that uh, allows things to do what they do naturally. Okay, so it looks like for Aristotle, nature is a purely functional concept. So for example, if we were to find on an alien planet creatures that were perfect duplicates of our dogs, then based on my understanding of Aristotle and my conversation with my conversations with Aristotelians, I think the view is that those would just be dogs. They're doing dog things, dogs doing dog things, that's a dog. Um, even if these creatures on the alien planet are not evolutionarily, evolutionarily related to our dogs, they just would be dogs. Because these, these terms that we have for natural substances are purely functional. And if this thing is doing dog stuff, so to speak, then it's a dog doesn't matter where it came from. All right, so they'd have the same nature as our dogs for Aristotle, that same principle of motion and rest, that same innate impulse to change. But perhaps that strikes you as weird, because um, it looks like everyone we know about evolution, dogs are defined not in terms of function, at least partly in terms of evolutionary origin. To be a dog is to have a certain evolutionary history. And if that's right, then if we were to find on an alien planet creatures that were perfect duplicates of our dogs, they wouldn't be dogs. They'd be dog-like. Um, they would function like dogs, but they wouldn't be dogs. So is this a conflict between an Aristotelian view of nature and what we know about evolution? Well, I think it's a, a merely verbal dispute. I think Aristotle's interested in studying how living things do what they do, and he introduces this term nature to name that power whatever it is in the thing, that principle of motion and rest that explains how they do what they do. So since alien dogs do what they do the same way that earth dogs do what they do, it's the same nature for Aristotle. They're functioning the same way. But um, 
when we look at nature through a Darwinian lens, we're interested not just in how things are functioning, but where they came from. As you might put it, the brand of the contemporary life form. So since alien dogs have a different origin from Earth dogs, they're not the same species, not the same kind of organism. And so, strictly speaking, not dogs. But as I say, I think it's just a verbal dispute. It's sort of like the difference between studying a phone as a phone, in terms of what it does and how it functions, or studying it as an Apple phone, in terms of its brand or where it came from. So you can imagine finding a perfect duplicate of an iPhone and asking, is this an iPhone? Well, if all you mean is like, does it function like an iPhone? Yeah, it does. But if you're asking, did it actually come from Apple? No, it's a counterfeit, it's a duplicate, it's not the same brand. So yeah, as I say, I think it's just a verbal dispute. Um, here's one more way to think about it. Are adoptive parents parents? Well, here I think there is a genuine ambiguity in English. In one sense of parent, yes, because they function as parents. They're playing the parent role, so they're parents. But there's another sense of that word. It's genuinely ambiguous. There's another sense of the word in which, no, if you mean the biological sense, they're not biological progenitors. So to the question, are adoptive parents parents, you just have to say yes and no in different senses. I think that's what's happening with Aristotle and Darwin. If we imagine this perfect duplicate of a dog on a distant planet and ask, is it a dog? It seems like Aristotle has in mind a purely functional sense of dog. And so he'd say, yeah, it is. It functions in exactly the same way. But there's another sense of dog in which, no, it's not, because it's not biologically related to Earth dogs. It doesn't have the right origin to be a dog. So I think once you understand, once you make that distinction, you realize these can both be true. There's no real tension here. Dog is said in many ways. Thank you, Ben. Um, okay, I did want to say one more thing, even though I said there would only be two potential conflicts between evolution and Catholicism. I did, um, when I was preparing this talk, I thought uh, it would be a good practice to try my best to, as the kids say, steel man one's opponent, to like, try to understand the strongest form of the objection. Why would people think there's a conflict between Christianity generally and evolution. Um, and here's the best way I could put it. And I call this honesty about evidence. Let's have an honest moment about evidence. What do you think about this, um, Christians and Catholics in the audience? If evolution were false, uh, if we found out that evolution was false, humans did not um, come by way of uh, Darwinian evolution, that would be some evidence for Christianity, right? I thought the answer was yes. <laughs> There's some people saying no. I would have thought, yeah, if you found out, um, what if you found out like young earth creationism was true, um, the universe is like 6,000 years old, there was this Garden of Eden, etc. Wouldn't you say, oh, Christianity is looking pretty good? <laughs> wouldn't you say that? Yeah, okay. That's, that's kind of what I had in mind. Okay, yeah. So if evolution were false like that, certainly evidence for Christianity, if you found out like, oh, the, um, life didn't originate by natural means, it was sort of supernatural. Oh, that's like raising my confidence in Christianity. I would have thought, right? Oh yeah, this wasn't supposed to be like a trick question. Um, I, thought, I thought that was obvious. Yeah, if evolution were false, that would be evidence for Christianity. But if that's the case, then uh, if evolution's true, it's got to be at least some evidence against Christianity. 
And here's why that is. Um, just think about a neutral case involving marbles. We've got a bag of marbles. But for some reason, suppose these marbles are numbered. Okay, so there's 10 marbles and they have numbers on them. Um, and for some reason, I need you to suppose that we're interested in this result, a result of one, three, five, or seven. So there's 10 possible results. If I put my hand in this bag of marbles and pull out a marble, could say anything between one and 10. Um, suppose I'm wondering how likely is it that I'll get this sort of result, one, three, five, or seven, if I put my hand into this marble bag and pull it out, what are the odds I'm gonna get one, three, five, or seven? This also is not a trick question. 40 percent, there you go, yes, 40 percent. Okay, but now suppose I give you some information about this result. I pull the marble out and I look at it um, and I give you a little bit uh, more information. Suppose I tell you uh, the result is less than six. The result is less than six. So it's one, two, three, four, or five. Now how likely is my hypothesis that it's one, three, five, or seven? Definitely can't be seven, but what are the odds it's one, three, or five? Yes, right, because there's still three results that would meet my hypothesis, and there's only five possible results here. So notice on that bit of evidence, if it was less than six, the probability of my hypothesis goes up. Okay. Now suppose, what if I told you not that the result is less than six, but we get the opposite bit of evidence? Um, it's greater than six. So we rule out one, two, three, four, and five. You still with me? Mm -hmm. What are the odds now that the results will meet my hypothesis or satisfy my hypothesis? Yeah, it's going to be one out of five, right? Okay, so 20%. So notice the probability went down. And that's because, I mean, when, you, when we estimated our initial probability, we just thought, what's the ratio of the areas between the number of uh, results that satisfy my hypothesis and the total number of possibilities? And it was 40%. And what happens when we get a bit of evidence is we eliminate some of these possibilities. We realize they're not actually possibilities. And on that first bit of evidence, we eliminated um, just one of the results that would have satisfied my hypothesis. So we sort of raised the probability of that hypothesis. So that means if we had gotten the opposite bit of evidence, there's going to be less area covered by my hypothesis. And that's what happens here when we get the opposite bit of evidence. Okay. So I hope you can see how this would apply to the case of Christianity. If I asked you, um, you know, what, how confident are you that Christianity is true or that Catholicism is true? I'm just going to use the same setup as before, but it, this is going to make it so that this is only going to apply to somebody who thinks it's 40% likely. Um, my credence is way higher. Don't want to brag. <laughs> but it's way higher than 40%. But this is just for uh, illustration purposes. Suppose somebody's at 40% uh, credence that Christianity is true. Um, if the result of learning that evolution is false is something like this, it raises the probability of Christianity, um, goes from 40% to something like 60%, then it just has to be the case that if you got the other bit of evidence, the opposite bit of evidence, that evolution's true, then your probability has to go down. Okay. But don't despair. <laughs> of course, what matters is just the likelihood of Christianity or Catholicism or whatever on your total evidence. That's what really matters at the end of the day. You can admit that a bit of evidence lowers the probability of some proposition 
even if that proposition is all things considered very likely. Um, so just think about, here's, here's another example. Suppose you're on a jury trying to figure out whether a defendant's guilty. Um, there's some bit of evidence that makes him look very guilty. Fingerprints on the murder weapon or something like that. One bit of evidence could make it look like, oh yeah, he's definitely guilty. That raises the probability that he's guilty. But it could be that on all your evidence, he's almost certainly innocent, right? Uh, maybe you have video of him somewhere else when the crime was committed. You have a written confession from another person who says he did it, or something like that. Um, so it could be that one bit of evidence lowers the probability of some proposition, um, even if the proposition is all things considered very likely. And that could be happening with Christianity or Catholicism. So that was my best attempt to, um, as I said, steel man the opposition here, try to understand why people think that there is a tension between evolution and Christianity. Um, so you hear a lot in response about how there's compatibility here. Um, but if this sort of thought is right, um, what we're really concerned about is how discovering the truth of evolution would affect the likelihood. Okay, and again, if you grant that the falsity of evolution would raise the probability of Christianity, you're just committed to thinking that the truth of evolution would lower the probability. Okay, um, let's turn now to whether evolution makes trouble for atheists. Uh, I think it does, in three ways at least. Um, here's the first way. So uh, let's think about consciousness. Um, remember what Pope Pius XII said, the Catholic faith obliges us to hold that souls are immediately created by God. So atheists tend to think that consciousness is a purely physical phenomenon. Of course, they don't believe in God, and so they don't think souls are specially created, but they don't even think souls are a non-physical sort of phenomenon. They think it's purely physical. Um, our mental lives, our minds, our conscious experiences are purely physical. But um, here's something that evolution sort of uh, raises to salience. Um, consciousness, uh, whether an experience is conscious, is what you might call sharp. It's not vague. An experience is either conscious or it's not. Something is a conscious experience or it's not. It's not like um, being rich, where there can be borderline cases, people where you're not, it's not clear whether they're rich or not. It's not like being an adult where there's borderline cases and there's people where you're not sure whether they're an adult or not. <laughs> Didn't mean that to be funny, but I'm glad it was. Um, consciousness is not like that. Um, it's sort of like a switch that gets flipped and it's either on or off. Um, because for a state to be conscious is just for it to feel a certain way. It's just for it to feel a certain way. There's something it's like to have it. And that's either there or it isn't. Um, here's how philosopher Michael Tai put it recently. Um, he says, we can certainly agree that as the intensity of an experience diminishes, you can imagine like falling asleep, it becomes less and less definite and rich in its character. But nevertheless, that doesn't mean that consciousness is vague, like rich or adult. Um, because even when you're falling asleep, either an experience is still there or it isn't. Eventually, when you fall asleep, the experience is gone. It just stops, like turning out the lights. Um, it's not like, you know, as you lose money, if you start out rich and then as you lose money, there will be a period where it's just genuinely determinate whether you're rich or not. Experience isn't like that. But as I said, something that um, meditating on the evolutionary origins of creatures sort of makes salient is 
that all the relevant physical phenomena are vague. And by relevant, I mean the sorts of physical phenomena that you would point to and say, that's what an experience is, or that's what consciousness is. Everything you would point to is the sort of thing that admits of borderline cases, just like being an adult and being rich. So if you think that, for example, the taste of banana or the experience of pain is some purely neural state, whatever state you specify, it's going to be such that we can make like minor changes to it. And you might think, um, well, that's now it's sort of unclear whether that would be pain or, or whether that would be that neural state or not. Um, same thing with anything else you might point to and say that's what consciousness is. Representational states, functional states, uh, dispositions to behave in certain ways, all of these things are vague. Um, and you can sort of see the vagueness of these states on parade when you consider um, the evolutionary tree and the evolutionary origins of conscious creatures. Rewind the tape a lot, there were a bunch of creatures that weren't conscious. Um, and then eventually, somehow, consciousness showed up. But all of these states showed up gradually in a sort of vague, non-sharp way. But consciousness isn't the sort of thing that can do that. All right, so maybe uh, you know, Pope Pius XII was right, which he was. And as VU offers an easy solution, um, if you're into special divine action, then you can say, God just sort of made a choice and said, here's where consciousness will show up. Here's where souls will show up. Um, but if you're not into that sort of special divine action, if you're an atheist or a naturalist, uh, we've got a puzzle here. So in the form of an argument, the puzzle is something like this. If atheism is true, then um, the reasonable thing to believe, the sensible thing to believe, is that consciousness is a purely physical phenomenon. But if so, then consciousness is vague, because all the candidates for the physical phenomenon that consciousness is, those are all vague. All right, so if atheism is true, then the sensible thing to believe, the rational thing to believe, is that consciousness is vague. If you think it's not, if you think it's sharp, it's either on or off, then we can conclude, oh, atheism is false. Okay, um, second problem. Second problem. Um, there's a problem with uh, what philosophers call teleology, and that just means with the fact that some things seem to be directed at a goal or seem to have purposes. Consider these sentences, um, and I wanted, I, I hope that these all strike you as true. The heart should pump blood. The kidneys dispose of metabolic waste. Not always, of course, sometimes kidneys fail, but still, that's what kidneys are supposed to do. That's what they're meant to do. That's what they should do. Arthritis is a disease. That's not the way things are supposed to be. Something's gone awry when arthritis shows up. A broken wing doesn't work. We find an injured bird and we say, oh no, this wing doesn't work. That suggests that there's something the wing is supposed to do. It's no longer able to do it. Um, and biology is sort of uh, replete with examples of function talk. Here's just one example. Uh, the notion of biological sex seems to be functional. To be a male is to have a body with a certain function, producing small, motile guineas. Of course, things don't always fulfill their function, just like broken wings don't fulfill their function, diseased kidneys don't fulfill their function, diseased hearts may not fulfill their function, but still, they have functions. And the body could have this function even if due to 
age or disease or injury, it doesn't fulfill that function. So these were just supposed to be some examples of sort of teleological language um, in nature, goal-directed language in nature, um, or as you might put it, proper function language. Um, that's very natural to use when we describe organisms. And after you see these examples, maybe you can supply many more. Okay, the concern I want to point out is that this, this sort of this notion, proper function, and related notions like health and disease, etc., they're pretty easy to make sense of on theism. If you're into design and you think that God superintended or orchestrated this whole process that resulted in human beings with goals and purposes. Um, and it's pretty easy to make sense of this kind of language. But this sort of language is harder to make sense of on atheism. Much harder. Here are some attempts um, to explain how it's true that the heart should pump blood, why think that the proper function of the heart is to pump blood, why think, or how to make sense of this talk of disease and health and so on. Here's one attempt to um, naturalize proper function. So I mean to try to situate proper function in an atheistic worldview, in a purely natural worldview, nothing supernatural, to try to make sense of proper function um, in an atheistic view of the world. So here's one proposal that people have made. To say that something functions properly is to say it functions in the usual, common, or statistically most probable way. Usually, bird wings flap and like lift the bird into the air. <laughs> That's usually what happens. So to say that the wing is broken is to say it's not doing what it usually does. Um, hearts usually pump blood. So to say that the heart should pump blood um, is to say that that's what it usually does. Uh, to say the heart's diseased is to say it's not doing what it usually does. Uh, but problem, this is not actually necessary for something to be functioning properly. It's not necessary that it function in a usual, common, or statistically probable way. Um, here's an example from philosopher Alvin Plantinga. It says, perhaps most male cats have been neutered. It hardly follows that those that haven't are abnormal and can't function properly. In fact, the reverse is true. The vast majority of sperm don't manage to fertilize an egg. The lucky few that do can't properly be accused of failure to function properly. So you can see that even when the sperm, a sperm manages to fertilize an egg, it's doing something that's not usual, common, or statistically most probable. Most sperm don't make it. But still, that's what the sperm is supposed to do. It's functioning properly, even though it's doing something that's not usual, common, or statistically probable. So here's another attempt uh, to say that something functions properly is to say that it exercises powers or properties which account for its past survival and proliferation. Why did, it, why did this sort of organ or function um, survive and proliferate in the past? Um, if it's doing what accounted for its survival and proliferation in the past, then it's functioning properly. But this isn't gonna work either, although, I mean, you could see how it would apply to hearts. Maybe this is the idea. Hearts have proliferated because they pump blood. So that's why pumping blood is the heart's function. But problem, this um, isn't necessary either. And here's one objection that's been given in this sort of view. Uh, one implication of this view is that if a creature had no ancestors, then its organs could have no proper function. Because on this view, for an organ to have a proper function, it would have to have a history. Um, there would have to be something that accounts for its past survival and proliferation. 
So if a creature happened to show up with no ancestors, miraculously or whatever, um, this view would implicate there's nothing that its organs are meant to do. But just imagine such a creature. Um, imagine we get that duplicate dog again on the alien planet, but this time it just materialized out of nowhere. Um, but there it is, you know, like sitting and shaking and barking and so on. Um, and its heart is pumping blood um, and its kidneys are filtering waste and so on. It looks like its organs could still function properly, even though nothing accounts for its past survival. This creature just got here. Okay, here's uh, one more problem. This isn't sufficient. Um, so suppose we create some knockout mice. Uh, so that means we like disable a gene or something, knock out a gene in the mice, resulting in um, some blind mice. This is a little autobiographical. I spent, spent some time working with knockout mice who were blind um, back in the day in some labs. And suppose we want to uh, select for this kind of mouse that's carrying this gene that's been knocked out. So we're actively calling the population of other mice to the generations. Oh, more autobiography did that too. Sorry. Sorry about that. But that happened. Um, okay, eventually we reach a population of blind mice. They're all blind because of our selection. It's a kind of unnatural selection. And these blind mice have eyes that are exercising powers or properties that account for their survival and proliferation. That's what was being selected for by the people working in the labs. They wanted the blind mice. So these mice, these, these eyes are unable to see. Um, they're exercising powers or properties that account for their survival and proliferation. Are their eyes functioning properly? I hope you agree the answer is no. So that means that this is not what proper function is, exercising powers or properties which account for past survival. One more attempt and then we'll move on. Um, you might say, okay, what if uh, to function properly is just to um, confer a survival enhancing propensity on a creature that possesses it now? Don't worry about the history. Is the thing functioning in such a way now that confers a survival enhancing propensity on the creature, helps it survive now? So uh, this isn't sufficient, and the knockout mice show that again. I mean, these, the blindness is helping them survive the weekly call now. Um, so it's still conferring a survival, enhancing propensity on the mice now. But that doesn't mean that their eyes are functioning properly. Um, also, there, are, there could be complementary pairs of malfunction and disease. So for example, uh, there's a certain kind of receptor on white blood cells, um, and a mutation in that receptor truncates it and disables it, and it can't function anymore. But, good news for those mutants who have this, uh, it prevents HIV from entering those white blood cells. HIV relies on that receptor, and so when it's broken, HIV can't infect the cell. So that mutation confers a survival advantage, which explains its prevalence in certain populations. I think my understanding is the Black Plague operated via the same receptor, and that's why like 10% of Western Europeans carry this mutation. And that's why 10% of Western Europeans are immune to HIV. So it is conferring a survival advantage now. But nevertheless, that doesn't mean the receptor is functioning properly. It's broken. It's truncated. It doesn't work. So that's that complementary pair of malfunction and disease. We've got a malfunction in the receptor, but it confers a survival advantage because it sort of protects you from a disease. So the problem seems to be this. Proper function is a kind of normativity. 
a kind of goal-directedness. It's truths about what things should do, uh, a way things should be. Um, but on a sort of atheistic, naturalistic view of the world, natural selection, as Richard Dawkins put it, is a blind, unconscious, automatic process, which Darwin discovered, and it has no purpose in mind. So science is just purely descriptive, not prescriptive. So that's why we're struggling to explain proper function, this kind of normativity. So as I tried to argue, naturalism, that sort of supercharged atheism, that's an atheistic view of the world, um, is struggling to make sense of our notions of health and disease and proper function, etc. But maybe you don't struggle to make sense of that. So don't accept naturalism. Don't accept the sort of atheistic view of the world. And I think that's why a similar problem arises for atheism and morality. That's sort of the big leagues of normativity. Um, so let's turn to that now. This will be the last problem, third and last problem. Um, I think there's a problem with moral knowledge um, if you're an atheist who accepts evolution. And you can see that by uh, apologies in advance, by thinking about incest, just briefly, just for a second. I don't know if you watch this show. You shouldn't, because it's degenerate. Um, <laughs> but this is, I guess the, these characters were involved in some incest um, in this show. And when you yourself think about incest, probably, if you're functioning properly, you get a little twinge of disgust, am I right? You get a little, ugh, that's not something I should do, ugh. Um, and evolutionary psychologists have an explanation of why this is happening. Um, they say uh, that twinge of disgust you're feeling and your belief that you should not engage in this behavior has two explanations. Natural selection was operating at the individual level, at the level of individual creatures, um, and it resulted in a hardwired, totally heritable kind of gut feeling. The same way that there's a bit of our brain devoted to detecting this shape and producing fear when you see this shape, because snakes were such a problem for our ancestors. Similarly, because incest is such a bad idea genetically, greatly increases the odds of having bad sorts of genetic mutations of the offspring inheriting like two broken genes, for example. Because it's such a bad idea genetically, creatures who avoid it tend to have more and healthier babies. So there was pressure to um, produce this sort of hardwired gut feeling repulsion at the idea of engaging in incest. But also, evolutionary psychologists say, natural selection was operating at the population level and groups of humans were sort of deciding what sort of social norms and taboos to adopt. And populations that adopted incest taboos tended to do better, tended to flourish, tended to outcompete their neighboring populations. So the reason you feel disgust when you consider incest is partly because of this hardwired response you have in your brain, but also you've um, been instilled with certain kinds of social norms and taboos by your culture, and these propagate through early teaching and socialization. When we socialize children and teach them what's right and wrong and good and bad, that's one way for these social norms and taboos to get in. Okay, and then I just have one example of selection operating at the population level that involves the Shakers. Do you know about the Shakers? There's a religious group, kind of like the Quakers, who you probably heard of the Quakers, but not many people have heard of the Shakers, and that's because they were celibate and procreation was forbidden. So that was kind of a mutation, so to speak, at the population level with these social norms and taboos. This population adopted a norm that 
You should not procreate. You should be celibate. Children were out of their communities, but rarely, and only through adventure, adoption, or conversion. That's why you've never heard of the Shakers, right? Because <laughs> they didn't have any babies. As of 2019, apparently there's just one active Shaker village. Uh, the rest are now museums. Oof. <laughs> Big oof. Um, so that's an example of natural, natural selection operating at the level of um, populations. Okay, so here's the worry if you're an atheist or if you're a naturalist. Um, and here are some atheists expressing the worry. This is um, E.O. Wilson and Michael Roos, um, two atheist philosophers who are skeptics about morality for evolutionary re reasons. And here's how they put it. Suppose that instead of evolving from savanna-dwelling primates, we had evolved in a very different way. If, like the termites, we needed to dwell in darkness, eat each other's feces, and cannibalize the dead, our epigenetic rules, that's what they call these sort of social norms and taboos, these moral rules that we've adopted, they would be very different from what they are now. Our minds would be strongly prone to extol such acts as beautiful and moral, and we would find it morally disgusting to live in the open air, to dispose of body waste and bury the dead. Exactly the same sort of responses you have now to these ideas, dwelling in darkness, eating feces, cannibalizing the dead, they would have, or if we had evolved to occupy the niche that termites occupy, we'd have those sorts of disgust reactions when thinking about living in the open air, disposing of body waste, burying the dead. Termite Ayatollahs would surely declare such things to be against the will of God. And so they conclude, ethics does not have the objective foundation our biology leads us to think that it has. Okay, Charles Darwin has a similar thought. He says, if, for instance, to take an extreme case, men were reared under precisely the same conditions as hive bees, there can hardly be a doubt that our unmarried females would, like the worker bees, think it a sacred duty to kill their brothers and mothers would strive to kill their fertile daughters, and no one would think of interfering. Okay, so um, let me try to formalize this argument for you, and then I'll be done. These sorts of skeptical arguments are called evolutionary debunking arguments. So here's an illustration of an evolutionary debunking argument. This fellow says, uh, hmm, today I will believe that incest is wrong. Suppose he succeeds. There he is believing that incest is wrong. <laughs> What we would like to be the case is this guy's believing that incest is wrong for good reasons, reasons that ultimately trace back to the truth. In order for him to really know that incest is wrong, it can't just be an accident that he's right. It can't be a coincidence that he's right. His belief needs to be held because it's true. Truth better play a role in the formation of his belief. But here's the worry that E.O. Wilson and Michael Roos and Charles Darwin have. It looks like once you learn about our evolutionary origins, you realize, oh, there's another kind of influence on my moral beliefs. Uh, this, these naturally evolved, the moral faculty that I have, that hardwired sort of faculty I have, and the social norms and taboos that were instilled into me from childhood, um, those are influencing my moral beliefs. And in fact, if you're an atheist, it's hard to see how anything else could have influenced your belief. How could it be that you hold the moral beliefs that you do because they're true? Isn't this the whole story of why you hold the moral beliefs that you do? Because of this naturally evolved moral faculty and social norms. 
But again, the worry is these influences were not interested in the truth. They were interested only in what's adaptive. They were only interested in adaptive behavior. The reason we have this hardwired disgust response to incest, according to the evolutionary psychologist, is because incest is maladaptive. It's genetically a bad idea. That's why we have it. Whether or not it's true, we still would have believed it was wrong. Whether or not it's true that incest is wrong, we still would have believed that incest is wrong because um, it's so maladaptive. And similarly for the social norms. Populations tell their members, don't engage in incest because it's genetically a bad idea, not necessarily because it's true. Okay, so these sorts of influences are not interested in the truth. Um, and it looks like that's the whole story from an atheistic, naturalistic perspective. And so for the atheist, it looks like we don't hold our moral beliefs because they're true, we hold them because they're adaptive. And that's the worry. Things are a little better if you're a theist. Sorry, things are a lot better if you're a theist. <laughs> um, because you can hold that, although these influences were operating on us, and we are sort of subjects to these bad sorts of biases, we have other ways of knowing about moral truth. Um, one is divine revelation. God might tell us what's morally right and wrong. And another is we might have a sort of a special faculty of rational intuition that was not the product of natural selection. That gives us direct, immediate access to these moral truths. It's hard to see how that's available to the atheists, but we'll have to leave that to the Q&A to flesh out. But if that's the case for the theist, as long as there is this influence on our moral beliefs that was interested in the truth, that's enough for our moral beliefs to count as knowledge. Again, even if we are subject to these bad sorts of biases. Again, just a quick example to illustrate how that could be true. Suppose you're on that jury again, trying to figure out whether the defendant's guilty or not. You are subject to some bad biases. Um, maybe you've got some sexist or racist biases or whatever. Um, so those are operating, but suppose also you're given just absolutely knockdown conclusive evidence that the guy's guilty. So you've got some like bad reasons to think he's guilty, but you've also got some very, very good reasons to think he's guilty. In that sort of case, as long as you believe he's guilty for the good reasons or on those reasons, you could still know that he's guilty. Even if you are sort of a victim of these biases, you're subject to these biases. Okay, so finally the argument, and then I'll stop. Um, the argument is, hey, if atheism's true, then the sensible thing to believe, the rational thing to believe, is that all of my moral beliefs come by way of natural selection. That hardwired faculty, or I've, I've been instilled by these social norms, been instilled with these social norms by my population. But if that's right, if all of my moral beliefs come by way of natural selection, then I'm holding them and believing them because they're adaptive, not because they're true. So from one and two, we'll just quickly draw this little sub-conclusion. If atheism is true, I hold my moral beliefs because they're adaptive, not because they're true. If you think that's incompatible with knowledge and that in order to know something, you've got to believe something because it's true, it can't be an accident or a coincidence that it's true, you've got to believe it because it's true. Then from three and four, it's going to follow that if atheism is true, I don't know anything about morality. And that's kind of sad. And then if you're willing to continue the argument and say, actually, I do know some things about morality, uh, then what's going to follow from five and six is that atheism is false. And don't you know some things about morality? 
Um, you know, once upon a time it was said that college students suffer from uh, moral relativism. Um, but I don't know, I think in the last few years, that hasn't been my experience anyway. It seems like these days um, there's sort of an abundance of moral certainty going on uh, on college campuses. And so I think these days college kids are quite willing to um, accept the premise that they know some things about morality. Racism's wrong, sexism is wrong, etc. These are things we know about morality. But then again, as I said, if that's right, from five and six, it follows that atheism's false. Okay, and then um, just to put you in a target-rich environment, I reproduced all the arguments here. And so you can tell me which bits you don't like from which argument. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for your attention. Consciousness is not vague, it's sharp. Um, but I guess, how does that apply to like animal consciousness versus human consciousness? Because it seems that, in a sense, animals are conscious. Um, and I definitely, like, humans aren't conscious in the same way that animals are, but is that like, at least from an evolutionary standpoint, considered a level of consciousness that's maybe below human consciousness? Okay, I'm just going to repeat the question because there's, there's a recording happening here. Um, so you asked about the problem of consciousness bit, and you said um, something that I claimed was that consciousness is not vague, it's sharp. And you asked, how does this apply to animal consciousness? Because human consciousness is different from animal consciousness. And did I get your question right? Yeah, I guess the, okay. the thing that too is like you're saying, like because it's sharp, then it seems like there's divine intervention, um, but I'm not, I don't think, like, and I, I don't disagree with you, I'm just saying, like, I don't know, is there the same kind of divine intervention with animals that seem to have some level of consciousness, even though it's not the same as humans? Um, yeah. I don't know, it just seems like there's some level of ambiguity in the sense that maybe they're all conscious, but they're conscious to different levels. Right, okay, so let me just try to repeat that again real quick. Um, so the, if consciousness really is sharp and it's like you know on or off, there's no borderline cases or gray area. Um, and so I said, you know, if you're willing to appeal to a kind of special divine action, then you have the resources to explain like when the switch was flipped or why the switch was flipped. And you don't have to think that God was, is like literally like, zapping um, creatures and making them conscious. It could just be that God set up these sorts of um, psychophysical laws such that whenever physical um, things get in certain arrangements, boom, then as a matter of just sort of fiat um, consciousness is there. These laws will look pretty weird if you're not a theist. They'll look quite fortunate and um, coincidental, um, fortuitous and so on. But if you're a theist, yeah, you'll say, that's just the way God set up the system. That's fine. Um, but your question is, did God also do this with animals, if animals are conscious? And I guess my answer is, um, yeah, if we're talking about experiences that have a certain felt quality, there's something it's like to have them. I think animals have these sorts of experiences. Um, in fact, I'm quite sure about it. Um, and so if you think even for them, this sort of felt quality is going to be sharp, not vague, then we'll have these 
quite jarring sort of psychophysical laws, which are awkward if you're an atheist, um, but not so awkward if you're into special divine action. I guess the shorter answer is, yeah, it applies to animals too. Is that, I yeah. should have just said yeah, that. Yeah, it applies to animals too. Ben? Uh, so, I mean, do you, do you really think that there are, there's no, um, so, I mean, the character of consciousness is different from the character of consciousness for humans, right? Do you think that's true? The character of consciousness for animals is different like, than the character of consciousness for humans. Like the way um, they experience things. I mean, I guess like the maybe what you were trying to get is that like you could take some animals that have conscious experiences, like dolphins and they're like really intelligent and all this stuff. But then go to the ones that are like not so intelligent. Mm -hmm. They just like barely have conscious experience. Yeah. Like maybe just pain when they get stepped on, or you know. Yeah. But not not much else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is, does that not imply that there's some kind of vagueness to consciousness? Oh. That it's not sharp? Well, I was going to agree with you. So Ben asked, um, isn't the character of consciousness for animals different um, than for humans? And you gave the example of simple organisms that just feel pain when you step on them as opposed to dolphins, which presumably have a lot more going on. So I think that's right. Um, I agree that our mental lives are much more interesting and... Um, multicolored and so on than an animals. And I wouldn't trade my conscious life for that of an animal, not even a dolphin. <laughs> so if that's all you mean, yeah. But um, we do share some conscious experiences with animals, even that simple animal that feels the pain. They're feeling the same sort of thing that we're feeling. Um, they're feeling pain, we feel pain. That's the same state. Of course, like maybe we have the capacity for like higher order thoughts that they don't have. We can think about our conscious states probably in a way that they can't. Um, so we have that over them, uh, at least the simple, simple animals. But on the, I guess on the other hand, some animals see colors that we don't see and have senses that we don't have. And so I sort of envy that of them. Um, so there are some similarities and differences between the mental lives in the animal kingdom. Okay, but then you said, doesn't that show that consciousness is vague? So that's where you kind of lost me. <laughs> no, I don't see how it shows that. Um, I would still think like for just a simple organism, maybe the simplest organism that has the capacity to feel pain. Maybe it's something like a lobster or something. I guess their central nervous system is not much to speak of, but it sure looks like they feel pain. Um, whatever it is that the atheist or the naturalist says that pain is identical to some sort of state of their very primitive central nervous system, that sort of neural state is going to allow for borderline cases. But the thought is experiences don't. They're all or nothing. They're on or off. So that's the worry. That's the, that's the difficulty of trying to fit consciousness into, well, that's one difficulty trying to fit consciousness into a physical world. Um, yeah, the physical world, especially at like, you know, these higher levels of organization, is just this sort of bunch of swirling clouds of atoms interacting with each other. And just as clouds in the sky are sort of vague and don't have definite boundaries, our physical bodies are vague and don't have definite boundaries. Did that sound weird to say? But if you just like imagine zooming in at like even your skin level, there's going to be some atoms where you're not sure whether they're like part of your body or not. It's, it's going to be it's going to be vague. Um, I guess that's the nature of complex physical objects, a lot of vagueness. But 
if you buy the premise that consciousness isn't like that, then we've got a problem of fitting consciousness into the physical world. So you don't think there's any animals for which it's uh, indeterminate whether or not they're having conscious experiences? It might be unknowable to us, but I think it's either the case that they are or not. Okay. Yeah. Any other questions? Um, I'm thinking about that diagram of if you do with um, truth versus natural selection. Um, Which diagram? The one with the marbles? The, no, 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 no. Pretty recently, it's just a dude thinking and it's just truth. Oh, that one, yeah. Superheroes, yeah. Um, <laughs> and just like curious about how this would look with like two people who have different morality that they claim is coming from the same source. Like, like someone who says, that sexism is right, and they claim that's like a true source, but maybe unrelated, but um, more in question for that is how would you how would you respond to somebody who says that like our urge to sin is evidence of natural selection? Like if somebody's urge to kill someone, is that evidence of natural selection? Okay, I'm just writing that down. <clears throat> Okay, so the first question was about this little diagram of uh, the guy believing that incest is wrong and we're wondering about these sort of competing explanations of his belief. Um, we've got an, an arrow indicating that truth was playing a role in the formation of his belief and another arrow indicating that natural selection was playing a role in the formation of his belief. And you said, um, what do we say about cases of moral disagreement um, where we've got two people with sort of incompatible moral beliefs and they both claim that their beliefs come by way of truth or something like that? Come, come in the good way, um, not in the bad way? Uh, not by these naturally evolved moral faculties and social norms? Okay, so that was the first question. And then the second question was, um, is it the case that our urge to sin is evidence of natural selection? I haven't thought about that one before. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to think about that while I'm answering the first question. <laughs> Um, so what do we say about cases of disagreement? I guess it's hard to say anything very general about those sorts of cases because there's so many ways it could happen. Um, so I'll just say, like, if you have in mind a thought like this, well, once in a while, actually pretty commonly, people disagree about morality. Um, people hold moral views that are incompatible. Therefore, we can't know anything about morality or... We shouldn't claim to know anything about morality. I'm not saying that was your thought, but if that was the thought, um, I don't think that's um, a very good argument. Because, of course, there's disagreement in other areas as well, like about history and science and math. And in those disagreements, both sides claim to you know, have truth on their side and they have evidence and arguments that they can marshal in their favor. People disagree about the shape of the earth. And some of those flat earthers are pretty smart. Am I right? <laughs> um, they're kind of hard to answer. They probably know more about it than you do. They know more about it than I do. <laughs> um, but that doesn't show that there's like no fact of the matter when it comes to the shape of the earth. No fact of the matter when it comes to these other scientific disagreements or um, historical disagreements. Um, so I don't think just the fact of disagreement shows that we can't have any moral knowledge. But I guess if you were wondering, like, well, consider a particular case. I mean, haven't there been people throughout history who thought that incest was pretty okay, actually? Um, didn't some, like, you know, royal houses engage in it or something like that? 
Yeah, I don't, didn't that happen? I think. So why did that happen? Um, so suppose we met one of them, we were like, you really got to stop, it's getting out of control. Um, and they say, no, we must continue and keep the bloodline pure. Um, well, I think they're wrong, first of all, but um, I guess we'd want to know why are they believing that? It could be that they don't have the sort of hardwired disgust reaction. Um, but I guess probably what happened is they weren't instilled with the same sort of anti-incest norms from childhood that we were growing up in a royal house. Maybe they were told when you grow up, <laughs> you might have to um, do some incest, I guess. Um, so maybe that's what explains why, why they think it's okay. Um, but I guess what we'd want is, I mean, we don't want to appeal to those bad influences, of course, because those aren't truth tracking, but I was just trying to explain why they might be in this headspace. Why would they think it's okay? Um, but I think, as a matter of fact, I mean, if you ask me, how do you know incest is wrong? I guess I'd appeal to um, divine revelation and rational intuition. And so if somebody came at me with the opposite view, I'd appeal to those sorts of things. Um, and then if I found out, well, the reason they believe as they do is because as a result of, you know, being raised in a royal house with a emphasis on preserving the bloodline, then I think I win. I, I win that debate because they don't have good reasons, but I do. So, yeah, I'm just sort of thinking through your question on the fly here. Yes. Sure. Like, let's say two people who um, are both facing their beliefs off the Bible come to completely different conclusions. Like, say, one, yeah. one um, believes that there is like a master race or a master gender, or, like, or you know, they have a certain views about yeah. gender and marriage that, that they're like sure are coming from the truth yeah. source. Uh -huh. And then you have another person, like, like that picture, Black Lives Matter, or something like that. Like, there's plenty of Christians I know who would be disgusted by that picture. And I'm just wondering, like, can you say that, I don't, I don't know, just like in that situation, comparing those two people who get like two very different yeah. um, knowledge from the same like truth source. Oh, yeah. So you're asking me to consider, um, you're asking me to try my best to imagine a situation in which Christians disagree over the interpretation of scripture. <laughs> I'll do my best. I'll do my best to uh, think of a situation like that. Um, and if the question is like, how do we arbitrate that sort of dispute? They're both appealing to divine revelation. If you ask them, why do you believe what you do? They'll say, because God said it. Look, it's right there. Um, but obviously there's a layer of interpretation. Um, they didn't receive the revelation directly. They're relying on the text. And in fact, their interpretation of the text typically, um, or, um, you know, their church's interpretation of the text. And so then I guess if you asked, how do we arbitrate this dispute? Um, since both sides agree that this is, the, this is a revelation from God, we don't have to argue about that. I guess the argument is over which interpretation is correct. And then we just do some hermeneutics to the best of our ability and try to figure out which interpretation is the best and arbitrate the dispute that way. And I, I guess that's something else that Christians commonly do, is argue about their interpretations and say, here's why my interpretation is best. And there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing unique to Christians in that way. Humans commonly disagree over interpretations of texts. I mean, uh, the Constitution comes to mind. Um, people disagree over how to interpret the United States Constitution. So this is just a very common feature of texts, I guess. And if you were asking me, 
How do we arbitrate it? I'd say in the usual way. That's, that's what I'd say. Was that all right? Was it, did, oh, I didn't get to the second one. Is our urge to sin evidence of natural selection? So uh, I guess the way I'm hearing that question is, um, would I think it's like more likely or is it sort of unexpected or sorry, is it expected, unsurprising that we have an urge to sin if we came by way of natural selection via these Darwinian mechanisms? Is it sort of unsurprising um, or expected? Is that the, that's the question? I guess I'd say, uh, yeah, it's not very surprising. That's sort of what I would expect if we came by way of natural selection. Uh, but I guess it's also unsurprising or to be expected on the sort of traditional Christian story about human origins. So no, I don't think like pointing to the fact that humans are disposed to sin would help, would um, support one of these hypotheses over the other, would like support atheism over theism or Christianity over non-Christianity. I think both views sort of tell you to expect that, right? Yeah. So I wouldn't point to that as if this were like a criminal trial in a court, I wouldn't say, here's my exhibit A bit of evidence. Humans are inclined to sin. All right. Any other questions? Yes, Matthias. How is it then that I go about when I say I know something because it's true? Um, what is it to say that, okay, I know it's true, why is it true? We feel the divine revelation or like rational intuition, but how is it that you, what are the grounds for working with that? Like how, how do I determine, okay, this is actually what it, like how something is true? I guess the bottom question to that is, what does it mean for something to be true to begin with? Oh, wow. <laughs> one, the, the other question that kind of connects to this is, why can't something be true because it is adaptive? Okay, hold on, I'm just writing this down. I heard maybe three questions in there. Uh, what does it mean for something to be true? And then you asked, why can't something be true just because it's adaptive? Right, why can't, the, why can't you say, okay, the nature of morality is such that given the kinds of things we are, things that have this evolutionary history, okay, we evolve to be a certain way, yeah. we should do things a certain way. That's the way we've been set, whatever the process is. And so, yeah, this thing is wrong because it is maladaptive, and we can see that both evolutionarily, we can also see it in the present moment. Okay, we know that it is true because the bad consequences of these actions, that's a true fact about our behavior. Okay, um, so the first question was, um, I guess actually I didn't, I didn't write a complete sentence. It was something like, when I know something because it's true, that's all, that's all I wrote. <laughs> yeah. What was the end of that one? What does it mean to say that? When I'm saying, okay, I know this is, I know this is, like, I know this because it is true. Yes. How do I know it's true? Oh, okay. So when I know something because it's true, how do I know it's true? So I guess the first question is, when I know things, how do I know them? How do I know that they're true? Right. Okay. So when I know things, how do I know that I know them? Okay, and then the second question was, what does it even mean for something to be true? And then the third question was, why can't something be true because it's adaptive? Okay, um, so I think I have a quick, a nice quick response to the third one. So maybe I'll just give that one really quick. 
So you asked, why can't something be true because it's adaptive? So if you're asking, why isn't this a good inference? Um, this belief of mine is adaptive, therefore it's true. Why can't its adaptiveness be the grounds why, like ground its truth, explain its truth, entail its truth? Well, I guess it's because there's a lot of beliefs that are adaptive but false. That's what I would say. There's counterexamples to that sort of inference. Um, one that I remember learning about back, back in the day when I took an evolutionary psychology class is I guess is, this is kind of a sad fact about humans. Um, there are many of those, and this is one of them. Um, rates of abuse and neglect are higher among um, step parents than natural parents, than biological parents. I mean, of course, there's abuse and neglect in both cases, but sad fact about humans, um, the rates of abuse and neglect are higher um, with step parents rather than biological parents. Um, the evolutionary psychologist can explain this, and this, I mean, the point to thing, the, the point to like hamsters and stuff, you know how hamsters will like eat babies that aren't genetically related to them? You, did, did you know that? <laughs> Sad fact about hamsters. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like if a female hamster gives birth to like this litter of hamster pups, and then you just put a male that was not the father in the cage, the male will like eat those babies. Oh. I know, it's really it's hardcore. Wild. I think there's a lot of animals to do something like that. Um, and the evolutionary explanation is, well, by eliminating those children, the female will go into estrus quicker and can be impregnated by this male, and then he gets his genes into the subsequent generations. That's the evolutionary explanation. Um, humans rarely eat uh, babies, but the thought is something like this is happening in the case of the abuse and neglect um, of stepchildren. Um, and, I mean... The evolutionary psychologist will say, the evolutionary psychologist will say, not me, but the evolutionary psychologist would say, that's, actually, that's an adaptive behavior from an evolutionary um, perspective, but clearly immoral. And maybe you can think of other ones. Humans are sort of um, hardwired to be tribalistic, um, and there's evolutionary explanations of why that is. Um, can we think of other examples? I don't know. Also... Evolutionary psychologists have a bad rap of like explaining everything that humans do. It seems like they can explain anything we give them. <laughs> so pick any bad human behavior and they'll spin you a tale about how it was um, adaptive in ancestral environments. So there will be a lot of cases of behaviors that humans engage in that are adaptive but immoral. Um, so that was my answer to your third question. <laughs> I have a vague memory now of when I said it was a quick answer and I'm sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Um, the second question was, what does it mean for something to be true? I do have a quick answer to this one. Um, uh, when you say of what is that it is, that's truth. And when you say of what is not that it is not, that's truth. When you say of what is that it is not, that's false. And when you say of what is not that it is, that also is false. I didn't come up with that. That was Aristotle. <laughs> but I am sort of, uh, I'm glad I could remember it on the spot. Um, but yeah, truth is just when what you say matches the world, corresponds to the world. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to do a correspondence theory of truth. And um, that's, what, that's what truth is. When what you say matches the world, corresponds to the world. Okay, the first question was, when I know something, how do I know? Uh, um, I mean, you just sort of asked about like the whole field of epistemology. And you were like... What's up with that field? <laughs> what are they up to? Um, so I guess I'll just give you some common ways in which we know things, and maybe that'll answer your question. 
Um, we can know things by way of perception, like you know, visual, tactile, olfactory, and so on. Um, that's one way we know about the world is by our sensory perception. We also know things by way of memory. We have a capacity for introspection. We can like look inside our own minds and see what's going on in there. We have this faculty of rational intuition. Um, that's the way in which we learn about foundational truths of logic and mathematics, metaphysics, and I think also morality. Um, so maybe you've had this experience if you've taken like a math class or a logic class. Um, the professor is like displaying some axiom or something or some rule of inference for you and it doesn't make any sense um, but then you get a little bit of explanation, you think about it more, and then it sort of clicks. And you're like, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I see um, that is rational intuition. But also just every time you make an inference, anytime you think, anytime you move from one thought to another, anytime you have a thought like A is true, oh, that means B is true. You, if, if what you did was successful, you engaged in rational intuition because you discovered that B follows from A that if A is true, B is true. So I think rational intuition is operating quite often. Every time we think rationally, every time we draw a conclusion or make an inference, we're relying on intuition. So Matthias, I hope that answers your question. Um, those are common ways in which we know about reality. Yes. This slide, this slide on its own without context. <laughs> Feel free to take a picture and put it on put it on TikTok or whatever you do. I don't know. Okay, somebody, somebody took a picture. Okay. So uh, maybe to piggyback off the question, maybe to put in a concrete example. Yeah. Why is incest wrong? Oh, I thought I uh, I tried to answer that before, and I thought I was hoping you'd find that satisfactory. Um, how, why do we think that incest is wrong if we're not just relying on the hardwired disgust and social taboos? Yeah, uh, I'm guessing there's some stuff in Leviticus anti-incest. Is that right? Oh, I wish there were some theologians in there. But Leviticus was pretty comprehensive. And I imagine they did. Was there an anti-incest rule? Anybody know? Oh, yeah. As I was saying, it's definitely there in Leviticus. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> Catholic moment. No. Um, yeah, so I guess if you had asked me why I think incest is wrong, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't cite chapter and verse, and maybe that's a shortcoming on my own, and I'm sorry. Um, I would have said rational intuition. I would have said this is the case where it's the sort of um, proposition that we can just see the truth of when we consider it, the way that we can just see that, you know, if A and B are both true, then A is true. Um, the way we can just see that if something is completely red, it can't also be completely green. Of course, those are probably more obvious than the incest case. I'm not saying it's as obvious as those cases, but I think it's pretty obvious that incest is wrong. Yeah, I mean, if I asked you, how do you know that? Well, I don't know. Any example I choose. I was going to try to choose a case of a moral proposition that's obvious. But it was going to be violent, and, and I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. 
case of like conquistadors and came like Mexico and I don't know like the indigenous people like the Spanish people they're kind of you know combining different populations is yeah. adaptively beneficial. Oh, wrong. Yeah, so you're giving examples of behaviors that might be adaptive, according to like evolutionary psychologists, but immoral. Yeah, and, you, and the examples you give of um, ex the examples of immoral behaviors you give are the sorts of things that come to mind for me. But as I said, like they're all just so violent and nasty. I didn't want to mention any of them, so I was trying to think of like a positive one. What's a positive one? Um, courage is good. Um, donating to charities, good charities anyway, that use the money well. <laughs> That's good too. Um, I don't know. So, it's trying to think of it. Courage is good. We'll just stick with that one. How do we know that? I think it's just by rational reflection. And also I'll just say Thomas Aquinas agreed. Um, so I'll just throw that in there at the Thomistic Institute. Um, he thought these moral propositions were self-evident. Um, so I, I agree. Do you disagree? <laughs> it's going to put you on the record. Um, so that's what I would say. Yeah. And I'll just sort of uh, issue this vague threat. If you're skeptical of rational intuition, it's a short ride to skeptic town. Um, because, yeah, if you think we can't know anything by way of rational intuition, and I'm right that like that's what we're relying on whenever we think, <laughs> then we're in serious trouble. Uh, yes. Any other questions? Uh, in your like a proper function slide, and you talked about specifically um, the knockout white mice and the uh, materialization of the alien dog. How can you use those examples um, for trying to debunk naturalist uh, perspective if both of those are inherently against naturalism? Materialization doesn't come from any natural sources, and a natural selection. It's by definition, not that Okay, so you're saying, look at these counterexamples. Um, they don't involve um, naturally evolved organisms or features that came by way of natural selection? Right, so you brought two examples yeah. and said, well, this doesn't work, or, you know, this doesn't make sense in terms of naturalization or natural thought, whatever it is. Yeah. But the two examples you brought up would never happen in a purely naturalist perspective, I guess. Yeah. Well, um, I think they could still work. I mean, all we need for a counterexample um, to the claim that this analysis here exercises powers or properties which account for its survival and proliferation. All we need for a counterexample in the right to left direction to show that, um, or sorry, in the left to right direction to show that this isn't really necessary is a case where something is functioning properly, but it doesn't exercise powers or properties which account for its survival and proliferation. That, that's all we need. And so I think this case works. Um, but I think we could also, I mean, in the, with regard to the sufficiency objection, the knockout mice sort of cases, that was supposed to be a case where we've got something that meets the analysis, but we don't have proper function. I think you could use, um, could we use, well, think through this with me, could we use that case where we've got that um, receptor on the white blood cells that's truncated, um, and that kind of explains why it's still around because of the survival advantage that it conferred in the past. So I think that would still work even to this analysis because it's certainly conferring a survival advantage now. That's why we used it on the next slide. But even here with this analysis that says, well, it's got to have um, conferred a survival advantage in the past. It did, and that's why it's so prevalent. Um, it helped 
people survived the Black Plague and I think maybe even smallpox. Um, that's why it's around. That's why, that's why so many people carry this mutation. But the receptor's not functioning properly. It's broken. What's that? Okay. Oh, there. Oh, that's nice too. Yeah, that's, that would have been a better example. Malaria and sickle cell anemia. Nice. Yes. Waiting about that. Okay. <laughs> satisfied. Another satisfied customer. <laughs> Yeah, I was just about to thank you for not asking about that. <laughs> but yes. Um, so it's like everyone in Pokaisen is literally have to come from the same source, right? The Adam but would it have had some local incest? Some local incest? Well, not if there was. Incest that would have happened wrong to like Oh. Blame that. You want to handle this for me? Okay. <laughs> I've researched the origin of humanity and stuff, and the whole thing about the, well, the origin of humanity. But they say is, and this is also on the genetic diversity, so, um, there are two things. So, they, the Mosaic Law, there is, if you have two genetically perfect people, there is actually nothing, like from a purely philosophical standpoint, there's nothing wrong with incest. Now we're genetically mutated, but if Adam and Eve are really unbroken, genetically perfect people, they are ancestors for a long time until enough mutations built up, and they became sufficiently genetically diverse, they were also... So, early on, they could actually, like, mate with their sisters or nieces or nephews <laughs> or something crazy like that, and it wouldn't have <laughs> problems genetically. And then once the human population got big enough, you would actually, the family trees could stop going in circles, and by then the genetic mutations, the harmful mutations had built up enough that, that the incest taboo had been instituted. And also that was, that the reason why Catholics do it directly is because of the Mosaic Law. But another reason is, you were talking about how <laughs> current rates of mutation don't show that they can, we can get the diversity necessary. You had that like- I said skeptics say. That's good to say. You yeah. had that big chart of like the of like the human species and like it split like the first split was like 775 765 yeah something like that yeah so i read an article once or I, I, there is there's scientific evidence that every species the maximum age of a species at least with current um mutation rates um is only about 200,000 years so some people say that like actually the mutations happen quite fast to the point that if you took like a whale from like two hundred thousand years ago and tried to mate it with a whale from now, they wouldn't be able to produce fertile offspring like they're that different. Oh. They just stayed the same because there was no new niches to fill, so they just sort of look the same superficially, but inside they're not. Anyway, that's all I can say. All right. That barely five species and like how their lifespan helps with like yeah, it depends. It seriously depends. But but that they yeah. Was that helpful or you want me to say some more? I was did you want to say some more? I was just confused as to like when you're saying like what point of that argument when you were saying like the human species were talking anatomically modern humans, like when we got to Homo sapiens, because we were still able to interbreed like with um Homo neanderthalus and 
Misian's part of that pronunciation, not my forte. Um, but would there be such a thing as perfect genetic code? Because by that point, you would have had genetic mutations in order to get that separate species. So would it ever be a perfect genetic code? I'm, I'm, I'm weird like this, but I believe that. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I can answer this. Yep. Do you want to answer it? Can you answer it like, okay. briefly? <laughs> I always thought, since they were unbroken at the start, like evolution could have done its thing, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, is like, Adam and Eve, I think, yes, it, humans came about in their natural place in the evolutionary tree, but I, I seriously do think that Adam and Eve were just either created directly by God, or since they were unbroken, they couldn't have any genetic defects either. <clears throat> So, like, genetic disease and all that stuff. So, um, I assume that either God made it work out so that all the genes came together right, you know, or God just, like, made them directly at the time of the evolutionary tree that they were supposed to happen naturally, by natural causes. That's the theory that they Ben, did you have something to say? I was just going to say, it seems like you're uh, kind of implicitly saying that uh, the reason... Uh, incest is bad because it has bad results. We can know that. Mm-hmm. But I think Tomas wants to say that's not the reason it's bad. It's bad because yeah, it's bad because it's maladaptive. Because God says society. Well, he's, it's bad because God says it's bad. Yeah. Like what you're God doesn't ever say something's bad for no reason. Well, I mean, yeah, of course, there's a reason. But did God say it's bad because it's maladaptive, or is it because it's just I bad? I don't think so. Marriage is supposed to build society, and so whenever you get married, the best thing to do is to go out to society, and your own family is not far enough out. Okay. Um, we can raise, so we are out of time. So oh no! <laughs> hey, thank you.